it's really important to look for responsible readings of scripture that give respect to scripture itself, but also gives respect to the people with whom we have to read it. This is Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Welcome back to another conversation about an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. Each week here, you listen in on a pair of professors from Yale Divinity School while they talk through what they found interesting about a passage. I'm your host, Helena Martin. I'm a student of New Testament here at Yale Divinity School, and I'm also an Episcopal priest. This episode, we have Andrew McGowan, Dean and President of Berkeley Divinity School at Yale, and McFadden Professor of Anglican Studies and Pastoral Theology, and Ned Parker, Associate Dean for Institutional Advancement at Andover Newton Seminary at Yale Divinity School, and lecturer in homiletics. They're discussing Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, which is appointed for the fourth Sunday of Easter for year C. The text is read for you by student Aidan Stoddard. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Andrew, this is one of those moments when I confess that I struggle a little bit. I always struggle with Revelation some, and with this particular passage, I confess that I I struggle with this idea of whiteness equaling purity. You know, here we are at a divinity school, and we're, we're hopefully talking to folks who are preparing for Sunday morning worship in their parishes, their churches, for their communities and congregations. And the Bible, in so many ways, can be read in ways that lead to and reinforce unconscious bias, light versus dark, 
And this is, I find this really troubling. And in fact, I can't think of a single, even Marquand chapel service here at the Divinity School where we haven't talked about coming into the light or seeing the light or this little light of mine. So I'm just wondering how to reconcile. I mean, I know part of the reconciliation is we can look at context, both the context in which this is written and, and scripture is written in our current context, but wondering what your your thoughts are. Yeah, there's so much to say about that, isn't there? The, the, that, that bigger picture, I think you're, you're right, that we're really, perhaps, uh, some of us at least, just beginning to sort of nibble at the edges of how, mm. how big a challenge it might be for us to rethink some of the ways in which we, we make easy assumptions about images, I would probably want to pause a little more, so to say, the images of, you know, white and black and the images of light and dark, yes. not necessarily being the same things, but both being absolutely capable of being misused and maybe not just misused, maybe there is still something that's inherent in them that that's problematic. I mean, I think one of the things we'll have to learn to do is to think more about the the positive ways in which images of darkness can also be a part of our understanding of God's presence. And, and there are th- things in Christian tradition that, that offer us that possibility, including the positive sort of emphasis. Po- positive is, is not quite the right word, but the, the necessary creative aspects of darkness in, in some of the mystical traditions, for instance, yes. like yes. pseudo-Dionysius and so forth. But to focus on Revelation for a minute, there are some elements here that actually help us do some of the work of unpicking the worst of white you know, the discourse of, of whiteness might do. So, for instance, the very beginning of the passage where the seer looks and look a great multitude which no one could count of all nations and uh, kindreds and people and languages. So there's this multicultural assumption here at the very outset about the people who are being brought brought to the to the picture, which I don't think means we can just exhale and say, all right, well, now we won't worry about the fact that there's right. this language of whiteness. But I do right. think that that's important. That's fundamental. You can't actually have this scene unless you've got a universal multicultural reality in mind as what the reign of God looks like. Right. That's right. one thing. And then, you know, the other thing, which is also quite weird when you think about it, you know, these are, these are they, this is the, the scene, of course, these great martyrs and saints, these are they who came out of the Great Tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Mm. Now, Ned, I'm not sure what the last time you sort of did the laundry at home was. I'm sure we both hope it was recently. I didn't use blood, that's for sure. That's right, you didn't use blood. (laughs) Blood is not the most obvious way in which to deal with dirt as we normally understand it. So while I'm not sure that this is sort of, in fact, it's definitely not a straightforward metaphor, but I think that actually helps. Yeah. Um, because this isn't really just talking about, you know, dark is bad, light is good, or black is bad, white is good. Right. It, it sort of queers that in some particular ways, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Yeah, I think about this. This is the fourth Sunday of Easter, and I'm American Baptist, and American Baptists call ourselves the Easter people. And and when I one of the things I think about in terms of the lightness and the darkness that you talked about is the the darkness of the empty tomb. So the darkness of that moment, Jesus' death, and then looking back to Jesus' birth and imagining the darkness of the stable. And in both instances, I would say that that for both that stable and the empty tomb, those things deified darkness in a way, made darkness holy 
because of the liminality present in those moments. And so I think that there are different ways of, as you said, different ways and different contexts of looking at this. And I, I really appreciate bringing us back to the beginning and, and the great multitude. I wonder if there are other passages as we consider this particular point, other passages that stand out for you in this context. If, if rather than another passage, I can sort of wander to another verse. Please within, do, yeah, within please. This one. Um, there's there's another aspect which I which I do think actually addresses your your last point, namely that the the imagery of water that. that that mm. also reappears in this because, you know, we just talked about the weirdness of washing with blood. But I think that, you know, for instance, water and washing imagery can be a part of that whole anti-blackness sort of construction. You know, the idea that dirt is blackness and water washes away blackness and therefore gives rise to what is light and clean and good, you know, that, that sort of narrative. Right. But in fact, just as the language of washing with blood doesn't work with that sort of straightforward polarity. The other thing that really strikes me is the end of the passage, which actually does talk about water. The lamb in the midst of the throne shall feed them and lead them to streams or fountains of living water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So the, the water in this case is water that comforts and cleanses. You know, it, it, it washes our our faces that are sort of stained in whatever way. But if you think about how water works, whatever the the character of our body or our skin is, is made more itself by the process of washing rather than less itself. If your skin is dark, then having other stuff on your skin that is not you will uh, could potentially be lighter. But washing washing reveals the, the, the true beauty of whatever the color of your skin is, the darkness or the, of your skin or the lightness of your skin. And the, the washing image here, therefore, it's interesting to me because it doesn't simply come back to this question of, well, Washing make things, makes things lighter, brighter, whiter, even though that's what laundry detergent commercials suggest. Right. Here, what it actually says is that washing brings comfort. Yes. That washing brings the, the, helps bring us back to the selves that God intends us to be, which is the action of, of comfort that the Lamb brings at the end of the passage, where God, God washes, wipes away the tears from our eyes because our, our mourning lost selves, selves that are removed from from community removed from fullness of life and not the selves that we should have and the the action of the water in this passage is is not that of lighter brighter whiter the action of water is that of restoration is that of comfort and i think that also probably reflects an ancient context where things like running water are not things to be taken for granted yeah that's a great point and tears are also water i mean there's a deeper emotional cleansing i mean i i think about People who I have sat with when I was still serving as a pastor, sat with in a hospital who said that they needed to cry because they needed that cleansing moment and to wipe away the tears almost brings a deeper cleansing to the cleansing moment. So there is there are multiple le levels of cleansing as well as multiple levels of, I mean, I know tears are more I guess, brackish than fresh water, but the water appears in different ways in this part of the, the passage, which is very powerful. It, it is. And, you know, you open by you know, commenting, I'm sure, uh, in a way that many of us sympathize with about how how much of a struggle we can have with the revelation to John. No, not, we must say, parenthetically, just because it's mandatory, not revelations. <laughs> <Right>. Revelation. <laughs> 
I think this this illustrates what's what's wonderful about the revelation to John. Although, admittedly, we've kind of lucked out here with this passage because right. if if the, if we lost the rest of it and kept this passage, I'd still survive. You know, R- yes, it's just so rich and it sort of hits me between the eyes in a variety of ways. But part of how I think the revelation to John works is that it has such this sort of extraordinary richness of images that the images undo any attempt to take any one of them and, you know, sort of weaponize it in a way that doesn't sort of then have to deal with the complexity of the one that comes after. This, of course, is unfortunately not what we see in certain sort of you know, fundamentalist entities where this does exactly get weaponized. And it's interesting, you know, of course, that there were people in the ancient church that were hesitant to include it in the canon, even then, even in the second and third century, because they knew what was going to happen, because it was already happening. In other words, you know, the weirdness of people saying, well, this this is telling me that, you know, the end of the world's about to happen next week, and, you know, I know exactly what that end is, and you have to do exactly what I say as a result. Hesitant to include the revelation of John In the altogether. canon of Scripture, absolutely. Even though I don't think any – I never saw any suggestion that they didn't believe that it was authentic – they did believe ah. that the seer John had had these extraordinary visions, but they didn't think that they were safe to let you know out into the wild, as it were. Really? Uh, yeah. So that was it. Was there was a genuine controversy about that in the ancient church, and this relates, I guess, to this question about you know who owns scripture and who gets to interpret it. Now we live in a world where we have a fairly democratic approach to this, but it's one of the reasons we're having conversations like this is that it's really important to look for responsible readings of Scripture that give respect to Scripture itself in its complexity and diversity, but also gives respect to the people with whom we have to read it. Thanks for listening. For a catalog of all our past episodes, plus videos and study guides for Bible studies, visit YaleBibleStudy.org. Chapter, verse, and season is produced by Joel Baden, Kelly Morrissey, and me, Helena Martin. Aidan Stoddart is our editorial and production assistant, and our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. Thanks, as always, to the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. And thank you, Deans Parker and McGowan, for being with us this week. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season.